Recode Radio presents Recode Decode, hosted by Kara Swisher. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, co-executive editor of Recode, and you're listening to the very first podcast of Recode Decode. Every week, we're going to bring you interesting interviews and insights into the world of tech and media. You may know me from my Emmy award-winning performance on HBO's Silicon Valley, or perhaps in the many interviews we've done at the Code Conferences and the All Things D Conferences over the years. So we wanted to take this to a radio audio format, and, uh, and mostly because I was jealous of that serial lady, we wanted to get into the podcast game. Are you overwhelmed by the tidal wave of technology taking over the world? Are you interested in the key players shaping the tech industry? You are good. You're a geek like us. And so you'll hopefully enjoy this podcast in which I'm going to talk about the big ideas in tech and the people who thought them up and dig into what it all means. Every week, we bring someone who's doing something that's worth paying attention to and sit them in our red chair. We use the red chairs at the code conferences, and we're bringing them here to this podcast, too. This week in the red chair, it's Stuart Butterfield, CEO of the multi-billion dollar valued startup Slack. Butterfield's company started as a video game maker, failed disastrously, but then pivoted to make office chat software into a company now worth $2.8 billion by VCs. Slack is a very well-liked company these days, and people seem to like Butterfield an awful lot. So let's get on with it. Hi, Stuart. Hi, Jack. How you doing? Well, Good. You. Thanks for coming on. The reason I had you is, uh, on this show for the first time is because you say wildly interesting things, which not everybody in Silicon Valley does, as you well know. Um, but let's talk a little bit about Slack. It's sort of come onto the scene in an unusual way. You start, I'm going to start with your background first because it is not an enterprise, you're not an enterprise guy, although I've heard from venture capitalist Ben Horowitz that you've taken to wearing suits lately and, and much more serious looking. But you start off in consumer tech with Flickr, one of the creators of Flickr. Um, Talk a little bit about your early career and why – we're going to get to how you got to, to, to Slack. But what were you – when you started in the Internet, what was your, what was your inspiration? Um, well, I first got online in 92. I showed up at university, got an account on the school's Unix system. I was blown away by the ability to reach all these people that had gone away to different schools. And especially because I grew up in a pretty small town, Victoria, British Columbia. Mm-hmm about 300,000 people, that I could find all these people who are interested in whatever. Um, and for me, this is a little bit embarrassing, this is 1992, um, is the band Fish, mm-hmm. um, who had barely broken out of Vermont, but I had a friend who knew them from going to school in New England. Do you know I was at a carpool with Trey Anastasio? But that's I, another story. I, I did not know that. Yes, indeed. But let's uh, move on. But so no one in Victoria had heard of Fish, mm-hmm. but... Um, there was early online music sharing. So like instead of MP3s, it was cassette tapes that you dubbed and put into padded envelopes and traded with people. And actually back then, the, the Netflix of the internet, like the thing that used up the biggest source of traffic was rec.music.gdad. Mm-hmm. So I don't know, this, this world opened up to me and it, it was apparent that for other people too, no matter what they were into, whether it was like um, model train enthusiasts or breast cancer survivors, they could find their community. So... This is maybe a year or two before the web really started getting popular. And as the web started getting popular, I got into it. Um, I taught myself HTML. Uh, my summer job all the way through college was making web pages for people. And in 97... Were you a geek? Was it, was it, was it a particularly geeky person or you just were shy? Mm. Uh, <laughs> I don't think, you don't have to be geek or shy to, yeah. to learn HTML. But um, I, uh, I was a geek when I was younger. You know, I was in the... Like, my second grade class was the first class to have computers in the classroom. Mm-hmm. Um, so whatever that was, 1979, 1980, something like that. I don't even know how old I am. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was like a, a long interest there, although it, like teenage years I didn't really didn't use computers at all. But it, the, the thing that was interesting to me was the power to connect people. Right. Um, and that was something that you know, had gotten started then in the early days of email, early days of the Internet. Um, and has just accelerated over the last couple of decades. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's really... Uh, I started reading this book on vacation called The End of Absence, mm-hmm. which is just that now we never have to be lonely. We never no. have to be out of contact with anyone. No, I, my, I always say my phone is my best friend. It's the yeah. best marriage I've ever had. <laughs> um, so you, so you, you, fast forward, you were doing this in college. How did you move into this? It started to get pretty exciting around then in the, ni- in the early 90s. Um, yeah, so 97, 98, I was in grad school. I was going to do a PhD in philosophy. I had just finished my master's, and I decided to drop out because a, a friend of mine got his degree, 
um, and from the best school for philosophy at the time and got the, a terrible, terrible job with no job security, low pay, had to mm-hmm. move to Kentucky. Yeah, um, there's a big call for philosophers in our society, but go yeah. ahead. Um, and the alternative was to move to the Bay Area um, or otherwise get involved in tech. Right. And, the, you know, the salaries are better. It was more exciting. It was this brand new thing. This is kind of like the, the very start of the dot-com era. Mm-hmm. Um, so I ended up at a design agency um, because it was such a chaotic time. I didn't really know anything, but I ended up the head of the design group okay. you know, within maybe a year of my first job in the, in the industry um, and kind of wrote it out from there. So there was, I you know, worked at the crash, um, started a company with a friend shortly after that was acquired in 2000 and 2001 or maybe just 2000. Mm-hmm. Um, and a couple of years later, started this company called Ludicorp to make a web-based, massively multiplayer game. Right. Didn't work. So games were an early interest of yours. It was, has always been an interest, and then they morph into other things. It seems like every one of your companies was a game company that then became something entirely different. Yeah, and I think the part of that is just because um, they're terrible, terrible game companies. Uh, right. Terrible games that no one wanted to play. Okay. Because they were really about, the, the game was a substrate for social interaction. And okay. I think about my, my dad plays bridge, mm-hmm. and he wouldn't invite those same three people over his house just to do nothing. And he also doesn't like playing against the computer. There's something about the dynamic that gets created. And like, I like playing board games and stuff like that. But it's a dynamic between the people that gets created. It's like some trash-talking each other. It's competitive. Right. You're using a certain part of your brain that's really fun to use. Um, and we wanted to give people some context um, for social attraction. In the but it didn't play. work. It's too high-minded. I mean, right. it's too hard to explain. People didn't get it. it was a, a tiny subgroup of a subgroup of a subgroup of people really loved it, um, but too hard to explain and too hard to make it a business. But it morphed into Flickr. How did that happen? That happened um, because... So we started the company in the, the spring of 2002, um, so you remember dot-com crash, yep. and then there was WorldCom, and there was Enron, mm-hmm. and then there was 9-11. Right. So it was like the all-time... Low point m- to start a company. Yeah, exactly. The NASDAQ was off 80%, S&P was off two-thirds, something like that. No one wanted to invest in anything internet-related, but especially not uh, consumer stuff. And of any consumer stuff, something frivolous like a game would not be the right. thing that people wanted right. to invest in. So we ran out of money, and we just... the one person How much did you spend? I don't remember now, maybe like $200,000 or something right. like that. We had raised from friends and family and our savings. And the only person who was getting paid was the one who had kids at the time. Mm-hmm. And Flickr was just a last-ditch attempt to make something out of the technology we had already developed, but that would be quicker to complete. And, and what would it try to do, the photo sharing? Is it just this was, hey, this is lying around in the closet and we'll use it? Well, um, yeah, so this was now God, uh, near the end of 2003. And so I had had a digital camera at this point for like a year and a half or two years, and they were just starting to become common. And it was, there's two things that were going on. One, I mean, first of all, the very first camera phones came out, although that wasn't a big driver. But it wasn't just that people started to get digital cameras. It was that the, like, the internet was fast enough to look at photos. So I'm like, so remember when it used to take yep, like, a minute absolutely. or two for a, a photo to load? Um, the speed of, of the network and the kind of ubiquity of the devices and the form of camera phones and people switching to digital all were kind of happening at the same time. So it just seemed exciting. And it's hard to separate now. This is, you know, it's more than a decade later. What's, right. what's a post facto rationalization for why we did it versus what actually inspired us at the time? Um, but it, it seemed like there was an opportunity to do something totally different with photos that hadn't been done before, mm-hmm. which was add all the social context. Because otherwise they were just, you know, put into a shoebox, literally, and put into the closet right, and, right. and pulled out. Or you know, maybe photo albums that would be taken out for special events. Right. But not some or stored project. on a computer somewhere. Yeah. And, and that, that was actually, and that was a big part of it, because when the storage medium was the same as the display medium, like when they were actual right. printed photographs in a shoebox, they... They were kind of easier to manage than when they were just abstract references in a hard drive. In these thumbnails. Yeah, like they weren't, and you couldn't even see them. Like you had a, you could hold a hard drive in your hand and not see any of the photographs it contained. So it became, um, in a way, harder to look at. It was eye-opening at the time to see Flickr because that's how you really didn't. There was a, there was this period between photos where they were in a shoebox and then they were sort of on a hard drive that wasn't very satisfying usage case. Same thing with music and other things. Yeah, and, and to the extent that we can get people to talk about them, give them a title, comment on them, add tags, you know, make them favorites, stuff like that, that we could get all this information that would make it much more useful. Um, Bob Baxley, who's now the head of 
design at Pinterest, but it was um, at Yahoo at the time Flickr was acquired by Yahoo, had a great line, which was, Flickr is a good place to be a photo. So if you were <laughs> going to be a photo, Flickr was, at the time, the best place to be a photo. So you sold relatively quickly to Yahoo. You had interest from Google, from what I remember. Yep. You had interest from a bunch of people. Why did you sell? Um, well, that was the advice at the time. And you know, it's like, first of all, it sounds insane to say this, but at the time, 25 million bucks was a lot of money. It was a lot of money. Yeah. Um, I mean, it sounds insane to say that because it is a lot of money. Yeah. A little digression, but I was talking to Chris Saka about four months ago, and um, someone else, doesn't matter who, had said that they were mad at some company for selling for just 10 million bucks. Yeah. And and how stupid they were because the founders only made a couple hundred thousand dollars. And Chris said, my parents are great people, and they literally would have murdered someone for $600,000. Yeah, yeah. Oh, Chris Sacka's parents. Chris Sack is a well-known investor in lots yes. of things. Um, um, so it is just in in any sense a lot of money. Um, we had we had uh, Reed Hoffman as one of our investors and advisors. Um, Esther Dyson, Brett Bollington. So mm-hmm. like a really kind of a crazy stellar group for that time. Mm-hmm. And their advice unanimously was to sell. Um, and part of it was because you don't know when another Asian currency crisis is going to hit or another right. 9/11 or something like that. And the rationale was you'll have the resources to do whatever you want to do next. Right. Um, and so hedge it a little bit. And so we did. What happened within Yahoo with you? Uh, you've been, you were well-known. Some troubles there, like working in a big corporation. Uh, well, I mean, I found it very, very frustrating. I hadn't ever worked inside of a big company before. I'd done a lot of consulting work for huge corporations. But when you're a consultant, you only you, know, you have this narrow interface to a couple of people. Right. Um, Suddenly being inside and seeing how the sausage was made and the the length of time it took to have decisions um, to to you know actually do something that would have some outward impact it's, it's tough coming from a nine person company where right. you can decide something in the morning and code it and then release it in the afternoon to this really long cycle um, which Yahoo is very well known for correct yeah <laughs> so. and it was I mean uh, you are the Maybe not anymore because it's less interesting. But you were the the Yahoo expert mm-hmm. in the, uh, the whole world, and you remember that time, um, two thousand and four. It was actually an exciting company. I mean, they were doing yes. interesting things. Absolutely, um, personalization. Yeah, I mean, it's still the point where they were a, a bigger and more profitable. I, I just met somebody the other day who uses my Yahoo still. <laughs> it was innovative at the time. People yeah. laugh at it, but it was super. Well, and and you know, like the, there was a, a team of people who were like who seemed really committed to using that advantage that they had and using all the people power to create a whole bunch of new and interesting things. But it was also, and this is a problem with most big companies, it's just competing fiefdoms. You know, that right. the actual, the people who had the power to, um, to control what got done to the company were constantly battling each other. Right, which, yeah. is, which is typical. So you left. You yeah. left and then tried to start another game company. Yes. And tried to do exactly the same thing with uh, three of the other people who were on the original Flickr team. Yeah, isn't that the definition of lunacy to try to do the exact same thing and hope for a different outcome? Yeah, it yeah. is. But uh, you get to do it twice. Yeah. I think. This is really the third time. Yeah, you know, okay, I'm waiting for that. So you, so you created this company. I went up to Vancouver to see it, um, another gaming company and called Glitch. Mm-hmm. Huge funding. How much money did you raise now? We raised seventeen and a half million bucks. Right. Compared to the about maybe half a million that we raised for Flickr. Right. So you go up there, great hopes. What happened? Because there were a lot of gaming companies at the time. Yeah. Well, I mean, a couple of things happened. So, for, I mean, first of all, it was. I don't want to say that it was a bad game. There's a lot of people who really liked it. Right. Um, but it was again just too hard to explain. Too right. high-minded. Not you know. Um, Especially because at the time, what was getting popular was Farmville. Farmville, and the vampires. Like, and then like Cityville and Petville and Plants Finchville. And vampires and, or something. Yeah. Zombies or whatever. All that kind of stuff. But the point was, it was really, really simple games that just from hearing the name of it, you could guess what it was. Mm-hmm. And if, when someone asked us what Glitch was, we're like, okay, well, sit down for a second because that doesn't take me about 25 minutes mm-hmm. to explain to you. Um, but also, critically, we started developing it using Flash as the front end technology is the client technology right at a moment when flash is about to die right we nice, were committed nice to desktop um right at the moment when people's discretionary computing time switched from desktop to mobile i mean this was early 2009 so it wasn't right it wasn't as clear where right things but were going. steve jobs had declared flash dead yeah i mean maybe like i don't know nine nine months or a year after we yeah got started and invested all this technology then steve said no no more um 
but yeah, I think ultimately it just wasn't, it wasn't something that was ever going to justify. So how much of your money did you spend before you got to Slack? We spent about 12 million. So we had 5 million left. And you called your venture capitalist, this is Ben, told me on stage, Ben Horowitz from Andreessen Horowitz, and said, this isn't working. You're going to give them the rest of the money back? Or what was the, what's that like when you have like, what is clearly a failure and it is not working? I know they call it a pivot, but it's essentially a failure. The... The relationship with the investors was the easy part. I mean, so the, it's fucking horrible. Sorry, I'm not sure if I'm That's okay. Go right ahead. Um, it's horrible because, um, I mean, it's, you know, it's humiliating. You have a reputation. You want people to, everyone wants to look like they're smart and mm-hmm. capable and, and stuff like that. But the horrible part is really, we had hired all these people. You know, there's 45 people who worked at the company. Right. We ended up laying off 37 people. And I remember that morning, um, getting up, you know, and saying that like, we're having an all hands and getting up in front of the whole company and setting up the video conference to the other office and then locking eyes with this guy who just had started like maybe three months before and I was really pursuing him and um, got him to move to a new city. He had a two-year-old daughter. He bought a house. He's moving away from his in-laws who are helping take care of the kids. You know, just like how much of a disruption to someone's life that was and then to say, Thank you for your faith in me. You no longer have a job. Right, right. Um, so that was, it was really, really hard. And mm-hmm. The good thing was we had a lot of support from the investors because they were, first of all, they didn't want the money back and they said, go do something else. Um, but also we had nothing to do and we had the money so we could spend, we spent like a month and a half or something like that, put up a, a portal with everyone's resumes and um so you're trying to find people jobs. Yeah. You thought that was it. That was what, we, what you were going to do. Yeah, now, so, and we ben, did. Ben says it offhand, like, oh, he had this office software, and then they decided. I think it's probably a little more complicated than that. You, you had. Oh, yeah, we had a long period of arguing about what we wanted to do next. What, what else did you want to do that wasn't Slack? Um, I'll, I don't remember all of them, but I'll, I remember the stupidest one. This is definitely, okay. this is my idea. Was, I'm sure I had a better characterization of it at the time, but was it an app that would just show you ads? So you remember, I think it was AdCritic, the website? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So kind of like that. Mm -hmm. So it would encourage the development of ads that you actually wanted to watch. Okay, sort of like good good ads that they have those contests. Yeah, and then Buy Now button embedded in it. Um, So that was a a terrible, terrible idea. All right. So so how did you settle on Slack? Well, we had built a whole bunch of stuff on top of an old technology called IRC, and... uh, a little bit of a long story. The details don't really matter. But we had been using it internally, and it wasn't ever a conscious decision of ours to do this. It just happened very organically and naturally. At the time we shut down the game, we had 45 people at the company. We'd been operating for three and a half years, and we had 50 messages in our email archive, like our Mm company-wide email list. So one email every three weeks. Right. And that wasn't, you know... Like I said, it wasn't a conscious decision that we made. It wasn't ideologically driven. It was just an artifact of the, of us using IRC and all of our attention and all the communication happening in this way that was really positive for two reasons. One was transparency across the organization. So everyone could see what everyone else was talking about. So the engineers could see what the designers were talking about and the people doing level building could see what the technical operations team was doing and the issues that customer support was facing were visible to everyone. And the second one was when we hired someone, they had access to the whole archive, like everything that was available. And so you might have just had this experience, having been acquired by Vox, who are Slack users, yeah. that you can just open up these channels and scroll back. You, yeah. know, you could scroll back for... Which for, had been done by social... There's been a bunch of them, but, but Slack seems to have caught on in a way that's almost religious with the people who use it. What do you? Um, let's talk very quickly about enterprise, where that's going, because the enterprise has been sort of this very difficult place to not have consumer-type applications. This is probably the first one that was consumer-type, that felt like Facebook, it felt like something that, that people had been used to in the consumer space that was delightful to them uh, or, or useful and not a consumer, and not an, an enterprise-level kind of thing. What were you trying to do there? Is that your goal? Um, when we started it, we... We made up this mission statement, and it's still the one we have today, which is to make people's working lives simpler, more pleasant, and more productive. So mm-hmm. I, one of the things that was crazy when I went to Yahoo was I got exposed to all this enterprise software that I had never used before. So mm-hmm. you know, the, you know, the payroll system, benefits, um, vacation tracking software, the thing that did the 401k, but also the intranet and um, backyard, which is kind of the portal to yep. all the internal stuff at Yahoo. Which you probably had access yes, to. No, once. no. I, I, I cannot admit or <laughs> deny that. Um, but it was all just so terrible. Like, I, you know, it's kind of mind-blowing. And there's probably many reasons for that. So one is that consumer software attracts more people who want to work on it. 
and I think part of that is because people want to work on something that their friends use. Um, it's also that we use Slack. So from the beginning, we use it all day, every mm-hmm. day. Mm-hmm. And if you work on payroll processing software, there's a good chance that you'll never process payroll in your whole life. Mm-hmm. So like you have no empathy for the people who are doing this. You have no idea what the hell it is they actually do. Whereas we use software to communicate um, for many years in a very similar way before we even started building Slack. Um, but once we built it, we knew, you know, we could put ourselves in the in the shoes of our customers pretty easily because we were also our own customers. Well, um, what's wrong with enterprise software? With all those things, it's just awful to use? Or what, was it an opportunity that you saw suddenly as it started to catch on? Because it's a very different, it really is, people are they, they love their Slack. It's a really interesting phenomena. Yeah, so there's two things that I just mentioned. One is that like that building of an archive in a way that doesn't cost anyone anything. It's the, the right. process of their regular communication. It's like you have knowledge management all of a sudden because you have search. You can put everything goes into a message. Um, and then the transparency. But there's another thing that we definitely did not anticipate and we weren't thinking about, but we kind of stumbled into, which was over the last 20 years or so, um, there's been... Uh, this kind of fracturing of the vendors that yeah. companies get their software from. So it used to be that if you were a small, medium business, most of your software would come from Microsoft. And now for, you might use Zendesk for customer support. You might use GitHub for source control. You might be interacting with your customers on Twitter. There's five different people that do continuous integration testing, which wasn't even a thing that existed 20 years ago. Um, CRM existed 20 years ago, but it's a totally different thing in this post-Salesforce world. And um, there's you know, now 20 or 30 different services to use and in almost every respect is way better as a business customer. It's cheaper, it's simpler, it's more powerful, it's right. easier to use, easier to deploy and manage and all of that stuff, except that nothing works with anything else. So if you have your developer issues in GitHub and you have your customer issues in Zendesk, there's no way to put those together. Right. And you can build an integration between those two, but you use 40 different things and you're not going to use 40 squared different integrations, but messaging is the kind of fundamental thing that we use computers for, and it is the one application that everything else could feed into. But your, but your, your premise can't be, it doesn't suck, is not really a, is a consumer premise. What do you think about Slack that differentiated from others? I mean, again, because I think people who use it have a certain uh, religious nature around it. It's really fascinating to watch them use it and, and create things? Is it just people want to talk or what do you think is happening? I'm not sure if I can put my finger on like one particular feature that makes it that way, but it definitely was something that we consciously cultivated because here's our experience. We started developing it. We decided that we want to do it. Two months later, we had enough done that we could use it ourselves. Maybe two or three months after that, we said, okay, let's get some people to try this and let us know what they think. And we like were begging our friends at different companies to please try it. And it was a big commitment for them to make because they, you know, they have a lot of stuff they already have to do. Which at work. Email. They were doing largely email or texting or whatever. Yeah, um, but you know, they were they were busy. Like they don't have time to evaluate. And it's a big change. And the most important thing was it wasn't a decision that one person could make. It had to be a whole group. And mm-hmm. at the point that you're making the decision, Slack has no value. Like when you first set it up, if you're the very first person in there, you haven't invited anyone, so there's no messages for you to read. You can't send a message to anyone because no one else is there. No files have been uploaded. You can't search. Like it literally has zero value for you. And at that point, anyone on the team who's kind of a grump can just veto it and say, I'm not going to use this stupid thing. So we had a real um, problem in how to convince people, how to give the administrators the kind of ammunition they would need to convince people, um, and also how to gently draw them in. So we focused all of our effort on the new user experience, and I think that's what makes a difference. It's the Slack bot being very friendly and chitty-chatty with you, and it it does feel like you're using a consumer service. Um, Do you think the enterprise companies have missed the boat here, that they they were purposely being difficult to use, or how did you slip into this spot? I mean... Well, I mean, enterprise is is so big. I mean, in the same way that... that um, This is a basic part of that communication between... That's the key part of a company. So here's... I wouldn't say that anyone missed it because they're dumb, but there's this interesting thing where this is not this was not a product category. I mean, maybe now it is. Mm-hmm. Um, but when we ask our customers, what did you use before Slack? 80% of them will say nothing. And of course, they use stuff to communicate before, but they don't think of this as a, as a product category. If you were to start a sales team today, you would choose a CRM, like among the very, very first things you would do. And if you were to start an engineering team, you would choose a system for source control. Like You would just never get started without making that right. choice for that category of product. There is no category called internal communication tools in Mm -hmm. most people's minds so they don't make a decision about it they just you know it's just of course you're going to use email but also 
you know, with you and you and you. I'm going to use iMessage with you and you and you. It's Hangouts for some reason because you sent me a Facebook message seven years ago. You and me are using Facebook Messenger. And then there's six or seven people that it's Twitter DMs. And so it's kind of all over the place and fractured. And it'll be like that inside companies as well. Where do you imagine enterprise communications going then from here? People are copying you, obviously. Yeah, I think that... Um, that idea of a transcript that's available to everyone with kind of this like living archive is something that people are not going to be able to live without. Um, and I think really critically, the idea that having every tool you use, every service you use, all come together in one place and have one search box for is something that's going to be incredibly powerful and valuable. So, so speaking of valuable, your yeah. valuation, what is it at now? Uh, $2.8 billion. $2.8. Why? How, do you have a lot of revenues? Um, we're actually doing pretty good, and it's, I mean the, the what's pretty good. We are at just under thirty million dollars in annual recurring revenue right now. Okay, but it's more but about still, the growth. Too, yeah, exactly. I mean, what? How do you look at valuation? You've been very funny about this idea that these valuations are just made up, I guess. Or what? What is it you said? Um, well, I mean, they're, it's exactly the same as art auctions or something right. like that. Like, how much is this painting worth? This Van Gogh? It's worth whatever people are willing to pay for it. So, how much is our Slack shares worth? they're worth what people are willing to pay for them. Well, yeah, but that's like tulips in, uh, in it, Holland. It could be. It could be that people are overpaying. Right. Um, but... Uh, how do you look at it when you see this valuation, like when, you, when you're raising money? How are you looking at it as an entrepreneur? Um, I'm looking at it in two ways. One, so there's, there's some risk of the valuation getting too high because any time that a valuation has to come down, it'll be painful for a whole bunch of different reasons. Um, but on the other hand... Um, the philosophy has been make it inevitable. And so having a couple hundred million dollars in the bank is a very helpful thing for a business to have. And capital has never been this cheap before. Right. And there will be uses for that in the future. And right now the use is just to preserve option value and to like to, to let us have What is your to goal? To go public or sell? Or do you feel like you're creating the new kind of company? Well, I mean, everyone's fantasy yeah. is that you generate enough cash that and it's reliable enough of a business, you can go to a bank and say, hey, I'd like to borrow $20 billion and mm -hmm. buy out our investors and then just um, pay off that debt and continue to run it independently. But that's not likely to happen. So much more likely is going public at some point. Going public. Do you, you've gotten lots of offers to sell, from what I understand. Yeah. Do you want to sell? No. But from the, because why? Because you've done that already. Because I've done it already and because, um, I mean, right now there's no reason for us to do that. We've been growing at 5% a week for a year and a half or something like that. It just doesn't stop. And that, that kind of growth rate, this kind of conversion and retention of customers, growth in revenue is much faster than growth in expenses. There's no reason to. And it's kind of a dream business. Do you, um, we're going to finish up talking about what it's like to be an entrepreneur right now, but some of the things you've done wrong there, what do you think you've done wrong? I mean, first of all, threatening. Our entire staff wants you to have threading and they're very adamant about this. Uh, well, there's lots of features that haven't been done okay. yet. I'm Such sure as those, dating, well, what? I don't know. Um, well, threading is one. Threading. We're, we're on the cusp of, this will sound insane, but bear with me for a second. All right. So, you know how people use faving on Twitter? It's like, yes. I saw this. And yeah. it, it can, and you get... A, we would of, like some faving on that, yeah. Yeah. And you get this kind of social context. Structure. Yeah. Like either thank you, or I thought this was hilarious, or just, I don't have anything to say. Yeah, we had a former employee, Mike Isaac, who faved everything, and he was the fave bear. So yeah. anyway. Um, Mike is a, is a very solid favor. And, mm -hmm. and so is Mark Andreessen. Mm -hmm. You know, like he'll fave anytime you tweet at him, he'll fave it. Well, he has no standards, but go ahead. <laughs> so people say it's like the humane read receipt. Um, I mean, that was something that was missing from Slack. And we were trying to decide what we would use for that. Would it be a thumbs up, a heart, a star? Um, a check mark, something like that. And we realized all of those are in the standard emoji set, so we just let you attach any emoji to it, uh, I a message. Okay. So I could attach the little dancing ladies, or I could attach the poo to your message. Okay. And once I attach poo, yeah. other people can click on the poo and poo your message as well. I, you know, our civilization has really moved forward a lot with the, yes. the ability to attach poo to notes. That's really I, nice. I, I feel like I could take that to... Uh, I, I feel you should win the uh, Nobel Prize for that. Um, <laughs> but let's finish up by talking about, we've got about five more minutes, um, talking about being an entrepreneur today. What's, what's the pressure like? I mean, here you were... 
you had a huge hit at the beginning of your career. Mm -hmm. You might have topped out then. A lot of entrepreneurs do that. Then you tried something else, which was a failure, which, as you said, was humiliating. And now you're like the toast of the town. Now you're the favorite person. You're mm -hmm. in the Travis Kalanick area of, of the club, essentially. What is that like? Tell me, what's the upside and downside of that, of being sort of licked up and down all day long by venture capitalists and others? Well, I mean, it's, it's very flattering and it's nice. Um, it's also very useful, you know, like um, in the sense that I'm here doing this podcast with you, right? Mm -hmm. So it could have been someone else in the seat doing the first podcast. But there's, um, there's a real sense of increasing returns. So like the further ahead you get, the further ahead you get. Mm -hmm. um, and I would like to take advantage of that. Right. But I don't spend a lot, I mean, the the pressure when you're failing is one kind of pressure. Which hard. is? Um, well, it's... Panic I, and fear. Yeah, panic and fear, and, and, and um, it has a certain flavor to it. And then there's the same panic and fear, um, but with a different flavor when you're successful, because it's like, holy shit, i got to take advantage of this while it's happening. Mm -hmm. We've got to hire the best people while we can. Um, we have to grow as quickly as we can. While we're everyone's sweetheart, we want to um, you know, make sure we don't pass up on any opportunities to raise money, hire great people, attract good customers, get the press, you know, all of those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. um, so there's a, a different kind of pressure. So I don't spend a lot of time... Are, are you and, are you worried about the economy? This is sort of, you know, these valuations have been high before Facebook when mm -hmm. it was a fifteen billion. I made fun of it. Now it's what a hundred and whatever. It's worked out well for it. What um what are you worried? Are you worried about the economy? Do you think it's no, over? Not really. I mean, so I mean, it depends on what you mean. So I'm worried about the economy in the sense that uh, a, a really serious correction or downturn is going to have a negative impact on the lives of tens or hundreds of millions of people. So in that sense, yes. In terms of whether whether Slack's going to be okay, not really because. Um, about 55% of our users are outside the U.S. already. We're increasingly diversified. Slack is pretty cheap. And it costs 22 cents per person per day. So it's not something that businesses are likely to give up. And if the economy goes bad, we're not especially dependent on startups. So like in terms of Slack's longevity, it doesn't really matter if there's a downturn or correction. In fact, in some respects, it would be the best possible thing that could happen to us. And again, I'm not wishing that on the world. But... If suddenly, you know, we could find office space in San Francisco, um, we could actually afford to acquire companies because they weren't all crazily marked up as well. Um, advertising rates would get cheaper, um, less competition for hiring, all those kinds of things would be, and especially if we're the ones that have $300 million in the bank, it would be a great position to be in. Right. So let me finish up. What would be a piece of advice that you'd give to an entrepreneur right now? I mean, now you're not saying you're the grand old man of it, but you ha you've had some experience. What would you, what's the thing that really you would do more of and what would you have corrected and of yourself? That's, a, that's always a very tough one for me. Um, there's, you know, I'm not sure if this is something that, that I had, especially within me, um, that I had to correct, but there is something, I don't know, un, untoward or unpleasant about the Valley generally mm -hmm. um, when it's frothy, yeah. which is there's just a lot of people who want to make a lot of money. Right. And that's what it's about. And right. it's not... I don't mean that you should try to disguise it by saying it's some lofty, we're going to change the world right, and, yeah. and make it better bullshit. Chief change officer. That's yeah. always my favorite. Um, but if that's if that's the reason you're doing this, you might as well be in finance. Mm -hmm. um, there should be something... Those horrible actually, devils over there, but go ahead. Yeah. Well, there's nothing wrong with that either. Yeah. But I mean, if, that's, if, if your goal is, is merely to make money... Right. Um, I really like making software, and I have for 20 years, and I work with a whole bunch of people who also really like it, and it's what we do. And it, you know, it could have been leather work or, mm -hmm. or tinsmithing, or it could have been whatever. You know, it could have been some other kind of craft in a right. different era. Um, and we're beyond lucky that it turns out that this particular craft is rewarded you know, completely out of proportion to anything else in the history of the world at this moment in time. Um, but it should be doing something that you really like. I mean, I, I really like working on Slack. It's very, it's great to work on something that almost everyone I know uses. I get all of the complaints. Do you feel like an enterprise guy now? Uh, yeah, I guess so. Yeah. Do you like meeting with enterprise people? Um, it's, <laughs> they're all people. They're all people. They're, yeah, okay. Yeah. Um, and last question. What do you, um, what do you really love right now in tech? One thing, briefly. One thing. Um, this will sound boring, but Google Maps or just mapping software in general, it's its one of those things that I, we will look back at at some point in the future, five years from now, ten years from now, a hundred years from now, as just like such a momentous change. Do you remember going on a road trip and yep. playing to the gas pulling station? Yeah, pulling out and, the maps, and, yeah. yeah. I just threw them all out the other day. It was very 
touching moment in my life. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and now it's like you can see what time the store is open till. You yeah. Know, and everything's phone number. And just like this information about the whole surface of the planet yeah. is something that we never had before. And it's just, it's totally fascinating. The, and, uh, you know, just the, we are the last generation of people like you and me mm-hmm. who will ever have experienced life before the internet yeah. and after the internet. And yeah. for, for everyone else, for our kids, friend, for every human. We are pioneers, Stuart. Now let's crawl into the coffin and go. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, thank you so much for being on uh, Red Chair, and we really appreciate it. All right, thank you. Coming up next, Too Embarrassed to Ask with Lauren Good. You're listening to Recode Decode, hosted by me, Kara Swisher. If you're enjoying the episode, please share it with friends and remember to write a review on iTunes, but only if it's positive. Also, be sure to check out our other podcast, Recode Replay, for an extensive archive of audio content from our events, including full-length interviews from the Code Conference. Now, too embarrassed to ask. Each week, we will have Walt Mossberg or Lauren Good or another member of our reviews team answer the questions you are dying to know about. And today we have Lauren Good, who's joining us to talk about Apple Music. We tweeted and asked for your questions, and we have a whole bunch. Lauren? Hi, Kara. Thanks for having me. Well, as we know, navigating tech is pretty hard sometimes, whether it's smartwatches, apps, or photo services, TVs, tweeting refrigerators, you name it. It's changing very rapidly, and it's really not your fault you can't keep up with it. So as you mentioned in this weekly segment, we're going to be answering all of your burning questions. Um, And we have some great reader questions this week about Apple Music. Yeah, Apple Music has been sort of the big story of the last last month, essentially, correct? That's right. That's right. Apple announced it at WWDC, which came as a shock to nobody. Mm -hmm. And then it launched on June 30th with an iOS update as well as an iTunes update. And so people have been using it for about a week now. But it's a pretty, uh, as Walt called it in his preview, it's a robust service, but it's also pretty complex. And I think people are... Is that a nice way of saying it's difficult to use as opposed to... Well, Walt said it's confusing. And I agree with that. I think yeah. in some instances it can be very confusing. But and so confusing, we had a lot of questions from readers we about did. it. Now, how many people have signed up for this? Have they given numbers yet? They have not given numbers yet. Do you imagine it's going to be a big hit the way they have rolled out other things? I think it's going to be. I think we can't really see that until the three-month trial period is over, and we see who decides to stick with the ten-dollar per month fee, and who says, "Okay, I've given this a shot, and I'm just going to go back to downloading." my iTunes a la carte and not subscribing. And uh, just to help readers, they've added a lot of things. They have radio stations on this thing. They, they bring in your own um, your, your music yourself. Yep. They have all kinds of offerings of what, what you should do. Um, so let's, uh, let's start with the questions and then we'll, we'll okay. all interject various times whenever I feel like it. Um, <laughs> this is from do. Twitter user at Prazak. P-R-A-Z-A-K-J. Hmm. Uh, is it possible to have different people in family sharing and in family sharing for Apple Music? Oh, this is a good question. So family sharing is this feature of Apple Music where instead of paying $10 per month, you would pay $15 per month for up to six designate, designated members of your family right. to use the same account. As a member, so actually, who's in your family? You can make up your own family. Well, that's the thing. So this question is whether or not you can have a different set of people signed up for your general family sharing account through iTunes and have different people designated for for music, for Apple Music? And the answer basically is no, because um, the way that Apple kind of ensures that people aren't abusing the family accounts is um, whoever has access to that account is somebody that can essentially make purchases through your iTunes Uh. account or through your App Store. And so you really want to make sure that the people you're choosing to be a part of this so-called family, whether it's family or whether it's friends, or people that you trust with your account. I don't trust my kids with my account, but all right. Yeah, you've had instances where your kids have overspent uh, (laughs) overspent in the App Store or in in app purchases, right? And so so I think what Apple is trying to do is discourage people from saying, okay, here are my designated family members that can have access to my iTunes account through Family Share, but I'm just going to give access to my friends for Apple Music. So the Why wouldn't they want that? Why wouldn't they want people who enjoy sharing music together to share music? together because they want everyone to pay ten dollars per month right if so i give if how I many give people can be in the sharing up to six up to six yes so they yeah. want to get sixty dollars versus a month versus people. well but in that case you're paying right or pay fifteen dollars for people that you trust i would be very surprised if people actually used up to five or six people in their family sharing account but um, it would seem but that if they want people to share and enjoy the music you'd have it's more your friends that you do that with or a group of people correct? that's true but you can, I mean, right now in Apple Music, you can share 
if I'm a paying subscriber and you're a paying subscriber, um, we can still share music. I mean, I can share links to songs. Walt and I were sharing a bunch of links to songs last oh, dear. week. It was very, I know, he was, was, he was schooling me in like 60s rock. It oh, was, dear. It was amazing. I'm so sorry. That's okay. Yeah. All right. Question from Twitter user Dane, t- at Dane Thorman, 85. So does Apple's human creation come up with these bad playlist names? <laughs> so yours, uh, this one that you had was Mom Jeans, which I think is an insult. I, I believe yeah. it might be an insult. Um, I, I, who comes up with these bad playlist names? It is human curation, Dane. Thanks for sending your question in. Uh, Apple Music is, part, from what I understand, part algorithmic and part human curation. And the human curation is something that Apple has really emphasized, and it's something that they acquired when they bought Beats. I don't know if you ever used Beats Music back, back Beats when Beats Music, Beats for music was a previous streaming music service um, that was part of Beats as a company and um, and they had all of these cool features there was one called the sentence where you could like plug in certain keywords and it would create a playlist for you but what Beats had really emphasized in this growing market of streaming music services is there are actual human beings human, human editors that sit there and make these super cool playlists for you and so now Apple has acquired Beats um, that human creation is now a part of Apple Music and so short answer Dane is yes when you're in let's say you're in Apple Music and you're in the for you tab and you get playlists like Mom Jeans, like I got, mm-hmm. then that is a human. Why did you get Mom Jeans? What were you I listening to? Have, I don't know. I, a lot of Katy it's Perry or maybe what? Katie, maybe Taylor Swift. Probably a lot of Taylor and Katy. Yeah, what is in Mom Jeans? Carly Rae Jepsen. Carly Rae there Jepsen. There was a Nicki Minaj song in there that I have to admit I did save to my music. So okay. I thought, oh, she doesn't gosh, seem maybe Mom they Jeans know, Maybe me. they know me better than, than I realize. Peter right. Kafka got a funny one too, but I forget I forget what Peter Kafka's playlist was that he, he tweeted. It wasn't Dad Bod, but it was like something... <laughs> <laughs> Some dad bod. Yeah, they should make a dad bod playlist if they're making a mom jeans playlist. <laughs> That's just Apple. You're welcome. You're oh, welcome. All right. Then. Um, so there you go, Dane. All right. So and then they're going to keep doing this. I mean, do you think they're useful having these things? I think so. I think that what people are looking for when they go into these streaming music services, listen, if you pay $10 per month and someone says to you, here are 30 million tracks that you have access to. Sure, you can search all day long and say, I want to listen to Pearl Jam Alive or whatever it is, but it can be overwhelming. And so, and now because these are online services and they're in, and they have da- these companies have data about their users. They can put together these algorithmic, algorithmic playlists for you and say, here's what you should be listening to. Or they can base it on time. Like it's a Sunday morning, so you should be listening to something chill. And, I mean, I, th- I think that, yeah, the playlists are definitely, a, you know, one of the um, a more appealing parts of streaming music services. Interesting. All right, question from Twitter user at JashFF. He's getting overwhelmed with music options, Spotify, Amazon Music, Pandora, Apple. There are a lot of them. I was using Spotify this weekend. I use Pandora. I find them all somewhat. I don't know which one to do. I tend. I I use Spotify right now, and I. And what do you think of it? I like it a lot. It Mm -hmm. works really well. It's super simple for me, you know. And they have the. I like their curated stations. Um, Have you tried uh, Jay Z service title? No. Okay. I'm not going to do that. I would be super sorry. If you said that you dropped that, I would be like, wow. Wow. No, no. If Beyonce came to my house, I might do it. But otherwise, no. Well, there you go. We have an open invite to Beyonce to come on Recode Radio. (laughs) It's not going to happen. Anyway, um, so you so explain the music options. There's a lot out there. Okay, so there are a lot. You have right. a bunch. So, so uh, Josh SF here mentioned Spotify, Amazon Music, Pandora, Apple. There's also Ardio. There's also SoundCloud, Tidal we just mentioned. Google has a music subscription service. Um, and in a lot of ways, I mean, these have been around for a while. In some ways, Apple is just bringing streaming music to the forefront. Um, but I think if you're trying to de- decide between these these services, there are definitely some things to consider. I mean, the first is if you uh, if you like sort of an extreme lean back experience, you're someone who likes to hit play, you like hearing the same sounding music over and over again, and you just want to not pay attention to your music, then Pandora, which is internet radio, mm-hmm. um, which is not, it's not on demand, um, that might be an option for you. Yeah, I have a nice um, whiny ladies with guitars. What is your station there. called? No, whiny ladies with guitars. That's actually what it's Something called? Like, yeah. Okay. It's a lot of like twangy. I'm learning so much about you and Walt I know, this week yeah. because of your music. I like prices. country too. It's actually amazing. I like country. So like too. Dixie Chicks and no, I like uh, I like Jesus Take the Wheel is one of my favorite. Wow, yeah, we're gonna have to play that as like our, I know. our outro song. It is my one theme of these, song. These shows. Um, and then the, you mentioned Spotify. Yeah. And Spotify, I mean, Spotify's been around for a while. It has a huge user base, and it's also multi-platform. So let's right. say you're one of three people with a Windows phone right now, right. Spotify may be the one for you because you can't get Apple Music. Right. And so that's something to consider as well. Will Apple be um, offering it on 
Windows phones? Apple has announced plans to offer it on Android in the fall, but currently no plans for Windows phones. Okay. Uh, if you like cobbling playlists together from YouTube, which a lot of young people do these days mm-hmm. to get free playlist access, then maybe you want to wait for a YouTube Music Key, which is coming out in the fall, which is another subscription service. Mm-hmm. If you're concerned about whether your favorite artist is in there, um, something like Amazon Prime Music sounds really appealing at first. If you're a Prime member... And then you think, oh, there's a million tracks for free. But a million tracks really isn't that much compared with 30 million tracks. So you might find that some of your artists aren't there. So unfortunately, you have to do a little bit of homework when yeah. you're looking which into is which of these. It should be. Really it is owner. And that's what we're we, here for. One of the, try to, the essays you wrote about is how streaming is, is not simple anymore. You know, it's, it's not. not very simple. And you, you want to just put on the music. And it used to be that actual radio stations used to do that rather well. And now they become these sort of factories. Just, right. They're platforms for ads. Yeah. And the, music's, the, the music is... So what is the simplest, would you say? Like, if you just want to listen to music. I think in some ways Spotify gets gets credit for being simple. You Mm -hmm. mentioned it earlier. Yeah. Um, But, I mean, they're all... I use Google Music subscription at home a lot, and even that's fairly complex. Yeah, and and the Um, sharing element, is that important? You know, Apple had Ping for a while, which was a sharing. mm -hmm. I remember Ping, which... I do remember Ping, which, yes, fortunately, is no longer around. I don't know if you remember when Spotify first came to the States and everyone started using it, and you could see in people's Facebook feeds all day long what they were listening to on Spotify, and that was sort of over... That was a bit much. Well, that was interesting. You know, when I was... uh, My son was using my Spotify uh, account for a short time before now he has his own, and uh, the founder of Spotify, Daniel, called me and said, you have really good taste in music. And, I was, and he named some band I'd never heard of. And I said, I don't know what you're talking about. I like Barry Manilow. And he was like, what? He were listening to, you know, Ching Ching Chang from, I don't know, like whatever. And it was because Louie was quite good at finding music. All right, last question, Lauren Good. Okay. Um, this is from Chris Davies at C underscore Davies. Uh, can Tim Cook hear me sing along to Apple Music Radio Streams? <laughs> Tim Cook seems like a pretty talented guy, but I don't know if he can hear you singing Chris Davies. I want to know what Chris Davies is singing. I, I don't know what he's singing. Now, and, and do you think, last question for me, is, this, is, it, is it hip enough? Is Apple hip enough? They brought in sort of this DJ for their, for their radio station. It's called oh, uh, yeah. Beats One. It's, that's right. Well, it's called Apple Music Radio, and then their flagship channel is, is Beats right. One. Right. They're trying to do a lot of hipster cool things. DJs, They're bringing right. in all kinds of artists. Do you think it'll continue that they can really push around people the way that uh, they'd like to in the music industry? I think that Apple is very well positioned for success in the stream music business. We've talked about this a lot, but Apple always takes this sort of sit back and wait approach. Other people do things first. They make music, you know, just just, uh, MP3 players first. They make smartphones first. They do stream music services first. And then Apple kind of swoops in and says, hey, we're doing this now too. And this is why you should be paying attention to it. And I think that um, given the user base that they already had built in with iTunes, they are very well positioned for success with this. But I also noticed that Spotify this week for the past five days has actually been the um, number nine best-selling app uh, for iPhone, mm-hmm. which it had not been since something like 2013. So people are trying things out. So people out. are starting to pay attention to it. Right. And I think that this actually could help sort of uh, catalyze other services as well that already have been out there and have had time to work out the kinks and you know, have these relationships established with both consumers and with labels. Well, excellent. Thank you, Lauren. Thank Thanks, you so Sarah. much, and it's we'll fun. be listening. And again, Barry Manilow, because I'm a fan of Jesus, take the wheel. Yeah, Jesus, take the wheel. And what happens? Jesus, take the wheel. Take it from my hands. God can't touch on my own. I'm loving you. <laughs> this is the single best song ever written. Thanks, Lauren. That was fun. And now we're going to move into Enough Said, which is the moment during the show where we talk about whatever's on our mind and rant and rave and have opinions that are unsubstantiated. Uh, today we're going to talk a little bit about the Ellen Powell Reddit situation. Ellen Powell is in more hot water. It has nothing to do with her lawsuit uh, or gender discrimination lawsuit with uh, Kleiner Perkins. Instead, it's uh, her leadership at Reddit, which is, a, which is an online community a very loud online community that got angry this week at Ellen Powell and the management of Reddit for um, 
for not telling them that they fired a, 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 a as someone who's coordinating moderators. Now, I have, uh, it was, it's, really, it's been a really interesting thing because it's been very, very noisy and very, very much like Reddit. And I have Noah Colwin here who has been covering this. Noah, fill us in very quickly on what's the state of the situation right now. So what happened last week was a bunch of subreddits, and, uh, which are like the sub forums that make up the site. Uh, the people, the moderators, the volunteers who manage them uh, they set a bunch of the most prominent ones to private, meaning nobody could look at them because they were really, really upset over how the firing of this particular staffer at Reddit was handled because she was such a vital support staffer for them. And so they went private. It became this big like, controversy. And there was, you know, in addition to all these people just kind of pulling, like, pulling off Reddit, there was an enormous amount of misogyny and hate that came up on the site that was directed at POW, like really, really awful stuff. So, so you know, this is a community that's very vocal, and, and sometimes it's interesting, other times it's just vile. Um, it tends to, you know, it's famous for the celebrity hacking, which people are using a lot of misogyny on the site. Uh, there's been a, uh, uh, several petitions, some of which, again, as you say, are pretty awful uh, and sexist. Um, and at the same time, these are people who, the reason the community is, is so powerful is because it's run by the community. I mean, it's not like there's an expression, you know, the the inmates run the asylum, but the asylum is the inmate in this case. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is the fundamental tension at the core of Reddit, which is that the site has in part, you know, it has something like 160, 170 million unique visitors a month. Mm -hmm. And you don't get to those numbers uh, without having, you know, had something like a really great core thing that drew people in in the first place. And that was the sense of community. And a lot of folks I've talked with, moderators, uh, just longtime Reddit users, they feel that that sense of community over the num like last number of years as the site has grown a lot, attracted a lot of really hateful communities that uh, have found a home on Reddit um, with a lot of like, really despicable names that we're not going to repeat on air here. And additionally, they've also, you know, like in the process of actually trying to become a business, you know, really monetizing the platform, so to speak, they have alienated a lot of those users. And this is like the fundamental tension. How do we keep this community feel well, simultaneously, can you a have a community that is not sort of uh, fascist in its orientation, like Facebook or Google or any of the others, where really they run the show, as opposed to Reddit, where the the community does? Well, so this is a re that's a really good question. I think that part of it is that there is a really good debate about you know the kind like the reason that it seems like we can't have that right now is because Reddit has just done such an awful job at moderating content and you know figuring out how to manage harassment and abuse. That's a, that's a big part of why it hasn't seemed like it is possible now. But, it, you know, it could totally be possible. Like, that's a re if Reddit achieves that, then that would be, like, a significant... That would be a significant have these milestone. moderators been successful, and where do you think it's going to end up? Um, they have been. I mean, they've drawn a lot of attention, and uh, Ellen Powell yesterday made, like, kind of a tepid apology. to the, It was directed at the moderators, really, and it promised new tools and better communication for them. Um, but, you know, it's, it's, re like, it's really hard to see where this ends up going. Perhaps Ellen Powell and Reddit really does pull through and all of a sudden the moderators feel like they're, you know, once again, a part of the team and so on. But it could also, you know, this could just be a thing to placate them and, the, and it'll just, you know, be another cycle of controversy again before we have another conversation about this. Yeah. Well, bottom line, it's great for a community to speak up, but the vile things they say, completely unacceptable. Gross. Thanks, Noah. You're welcome. Thank you so much to the audience for listening to our first ever Recode Decode podcast. We'll be back next week with a new episode. This has been Recode Decode, hosted by Kara Swisher. Thanks for tuning in. For more hard-hitting interviews with insiders from the worlds of tech, media, and politics, subscribe to Recode Replay on iTunes. Featuring candid conversations with leading voices like Snapchat CEO Evan Spiegel, Uber founder Travis Kalanick, reality star Kim Kardashian, Shark Tank host Mark Cuban, and presidential candidate Hillary Clinton, President Obama, and more. They're all on Recode Replay.